You are now listening to a podcast made in collaboration with the Copenhagen College Radio. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to episode 76 of the Social Media and Politics Podcast, bringing you expert insights into how social media is changing the political game. I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, political scientist at the University of Copenhagen. You can follow us on Twitter at SMNP Podcast and sign up for the newsletter on our website, socialmediaandpolitics.org. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for tuning in. In this episode, I'm going to be speaking with Bill Ottman. He is the founder and CEO of a crypto social network called Minds. And if you want to check it out, you can go to Minds.com. It has about 200,000 monthly active users. And what it does is it allows users on the platform to earn tokens that are connected to a cryptocurrency. And those can be used to send to other users as tips, or they can be used to boost content, much in the way that Facebook allows you to, except it doesn't have the algorithmic filtering that Facebook does. So we know recently Facebook made a lot of changes to its algorithm that decreased the organic reach of publishers' posts. And Minds is trying to counter that by putting the sort of algorithmic function into the hands of users. So it has a lot of different social media wrapped up into it. It's got channels like YouTube. It's got a sort of blogging platform. You can like and retweet, or as they call it, remind. And in doing so, earn tokens that are connected to a mines coin, which is part of the Ethereum crypto network. So that's cool. They're doing some interesting things with blockchain technology as well. There is no censorship on the site. So there have been some accusations against mines for you know harboring right-wing extremists content. So we're going to get into how Bill feels about that. But overall, I think it's a really interesting interview to see kind of platforms that are responding to the dominance of Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, etc. You know, what's the alternative and where might things be going in the future? So without further ado, let me turn it over to Bill Ottman. Again, he is the CEO and founder of Minds. Bill, thanks so much for taking the time out and welcome to the Social Media and Politics Podcast. It's like to be here. Can you start out by telling us just a bit in your own words what Minds is and why you decided to start it? Yeah. So Minds is a free and open source social networking platform. We have around a million and a half users. Uh, we have a native cryptocurrency that you earn for your contributions, and then you can use the tokens for promoting your posts. One token will give you a thousand extra impressions on whatever content you boost. You can send them peer-to-peer -to, -peer to other users in exchange for rewards, sort of in a crowdfunding model. And essentially, we're just you know very focused on transparency, privacy, digital rights, and doing everything the inverse of the mainstream proprietary surveillance social networks. Right. And I want to get into those motivations uh, a bit later, but I want to kind of start out and lay out what Minds is. I've been playing around, trying out some of the features, and it kind of seems like a one-stop shop for social media, right? It has hashtags like Twitter. It's got channels like YouTube. It has a kind of blogging interface like Medium. So I wanted to ask, how did you decide on the features and functions to include and not include? It's been an evolution. I mean, we want full multimedia capabilities. So like in the last six months, we actually brought in video chat into the groups feature. Um, we brought in group chat. We have, an, we have an encrypted messenger as well. 
I mean, if you look at what's happening with most major social apps, they're sort of all becoming the same thing. You know, you have video, you have a feed, you have messages and so on. And, you know, whether it's YouTube or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever, they're all gravitating towards this common set of functionality, which I think is is very interesting because it's sort of showing us how people prefer to communicate. And so I think it's fair to be aware of trends but, you know, not be slave to them. So, you know, we do want people to be able to communicate as well as possible. And, you know, that is going to inevitably include things like live streaming and stories and, you know, everything that you expect from the multi-billion dollar social networks. So we're sort of charging at that. And, you know, meanwhile, we're also building in more community-centric features Um, Like we're building this jury system right now for the whole community uh, moderation functionality so that the users can actually be a part of the moderation process. It's not just like this hierarchical bureaucracy where there's no access to the rationale behind the decision making and, you know, whether it's taking down content or whatever. So I guess we just listen to the community mostly on what people want. That sort of drives our priorities. And we actually do all of our development fully out in the open on on gitlab.com slash minds. Anyone can like vote on features they want. They can even help build features. So, you know, we're definitely just listening to what people want. Right. And that was actually my next question, which is about the open source aspect, which I know you've talked about quite a bit. Um, For our non-tech oriented listeners in the programming sense out there, what exactly does it mean that your platform is open source and sort of why is it open source? What it means is that the code that makes the app is available for anyone to take and inspect or make their own version of our app, launch your own social network. That's actually uh, something that we will help people do. And it's just more subject to public scrutiny and peer review. So, you know, people are aware of what our algorithms are doing and, and, you know, if we're doing anything sketchy, hopefully they can find it, which, you know, I hope we're not. I don't think we are, but it gives you the ability to understand. It's not that you even care. It's like, all right, with your food, you want there to be transparency that there's no crazy chemicals in your food. You know, you're not going to most likely be the one who (laughs) goes and does all that research, but there is a a community of experts who would want to do that research for the benefit of of the uh, world. So um, that's why it's it's the principle. It's not so much that we expect any normal person is going to do it. Because it seems to me that's quite a risk to put your proprietary code out on the internet. I mean, is that do you get some sort of benefit for having people improve it? Is is that part of the reason? Or because it seems just kind of with these other platforms, they have these proprietary uh, algorithms, mm-hmm. you know, that are that are black box. Um, right. So what's in it from from your end in, in that regard? I mean, there's everything's in it. I, I felt a little bit of that initial fear when we were opening up our code that, oh, my gosh, someone's going to come and steal what we did. And that would be horrible. But first of all, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's it's really not rational. It's 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 fear based. And if you look at 
top tech companies like Mongo Database or WordPress even, which is an open source blogging platform, or uh, Wikipedia even. But Linux, generally speaking, anyone who doesn't know, it's an open source operating system that's in Android and in millions of devices all over the world, pretty much powering the global uh, tech infrastructure at the server level. So under the license, the AGPLv3, the, the general public license, if anyone takes our code, they actually have to show the changes with everybody. So that's where there's a distinction between a copyleft free software license with a regular open source license, mm -hmm. which would be like the Apache license or MIT. And those are cool, too. Those basically allow anyone to do anything that, you know, they can take it and they don't have to share the changes. Um, and then so there's this spectrum of different types of licenses where, you know, full public domain actually means you don't even have to give any credit at all you can just take it and do anything you want with it you don't you can pr pretend it's yours for all anyone cares but then you know most licenses require that you repost the license and, and repost credit to you know the author but you can still take it and sell it and do whatever you want and then you know agplv3 is is really interesting because it sort of has embedded in in the language and the policy that everyone has to share the results with everyone. And so it sort of propels innovation in that respect. So, you know, the reason that free and open source projects are able to grow is because it's more easy to achieve network effects. You can get more developers involved. There's, you know, just because it's free and open source doesn't mean you can necessarily trust it, but it means that it's more able to be trusted. You know, you, you're not able to trust closed source proprietary software like Facebook and Twitter and Google um, because the, even if it was secure behind the scenes, there would be no way for them to actually prove that it is. Right. Um, I wanted to ask about the content on Minds because I know from a user experience, just logging in, you're supposed to follow a bunch of hashtags that range from fashion to art, uh, kind of general stuff we'd see on, on social media. Um, what are the most popular hashtags on Minds? What's the kind of content that's, that's going on there? The most popular is probably art, music, original photography. Uh, there's this one hashtag called My Photo, which has gotten really big, which you know, just means that it's it's yours. It's not just a repost that you stole. And people really like that because they tend to like original content the most. It's more authentic. You know, it's not you just trying to drive traffic to your page, um, you know, just scouring the internet for the best content and sort of taking it. And that's really popular. Also, you know, politics, news. Uh, we have lots of activists, journalists, writers, people who are really concerned with what's going on in the world. Um, yeah, th th those and then also like technology, blockchain, lots of crypto people as well. Yeah, that's what I noticed. My impression was it's the crypto and the blockchain group was the most most active that I could see. Mm -hmm. um, now, one of the key differences with mines from other social media is the ability to pay other users, uh, particularly in cryptocurrency. So I want to ask, what's the thought process behind that model? of sharing cryptocurrency to boost a post or to reward other users for content? 
Yeah, I mean, the crypto has been so much fun to integrate. We had a, a, a point system back in the day in like 2015 when we first launched the apps, where it's just an internal currency, points you would earn for doing doing things. And then one point would give you one extra view if you earned it and you could boost your post for more views. And we did it because the algorithms are basically strangling everybody's reach on all of the other social networks. So it's particularly on Facebook, you know, most people are like, you know, they hear the word algorithm and they just sort of a glaze goes over mm-hmm. <laughs> their eyes. Um, but what many people care about is is their likes and the engagement that they get on their posts. And over the past five years, organic reach has been declining intentionally on big networks because, you know, they in their newsfeed by default show you things not in chronological order, but in a manner which they won't uh, expose which isn't, you know, thousands of variables which predict what they think you're most likely to click on and be interested in. And they say that it's for quote unquote quality. But realistically, I and I know many others would prefer to have control over my newsfeed. I want to get what I subscribe to when they post it. That's what I want as my default. And that's what we've committed to at Minds to do forever, which is always have the basic newsfeed be 100% organic, raw, chronological by default. And you can opt into other feeds with, you know, trending or, or whatnot so that you can, you know, see different, different types of prioritized content. But the betrayal that Google and Facebook and, you know, and Instagram and, you know, they're all starting to play with this. The betrayal is that they brought people in under this, essentially a contract that, yeah, when you post, your followers are going to see what you post. And so thousands of, of media companies put years and years into Facebook. We even had pages on Facebook with like 5 million followers. And we're driving a ton of traffic through there. And then, you know, over the years, a page that used to get thousands of interactions and upvotes or likes per post would now only get like 50. So... You know, that was a bait and switch. They got everybody to come to the networks under this agreement or presupposition that you're going to get this reach. And then they got everyone in and they took it away because they knew they could monetize it. And they knew that, you know, they could target certain things that you add and whatnot that are going to benefit them more. So that was a huge uh, red flag. And, you know, along with the surveillance and the general misuse of data and, you know, lack of digital democracy. It's just, I don't, and, and, you know, now millions of people don't consider these big networks to be sustainable. Right, right. I have some counterpoints I want to come back to, but, um, but first I, I want to stick on this idea of the, the cryptocurrency. Um, are you familiar with article 13? The internet censorship uh, thing. Oh, it's over here in the, in the European Parliament. Yes, I have heard of. Uh, is it is it in effect? It is. Yes. It went in. Yeah. So they they vote they voted for it uh, as we're you know recording basically, which the idea was basically be it would put more money in the hands of the creators and artists, particularly of large record labels, but also independent producers, and sort of take that money away from the platform distributors. So I was wondering, you know, before we before we started uh, talking, I mean, wouldn't the crypto model be aimed at achieving a similar effect? Well, Article 13 is sort of sort of a hidden censorship bill, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. I mean, you know, it's 
protecting quote unquote rights, but it also requires that content go through a proprietary filter before being uploaded to any number of networks, which in itself is a violation because I I would never want to require that my users be interacting with uh, proprietary software that they didn't consent to or uh, have any idea what it's what it's doing to them. And there's so much danger in that filter. I mean, because that filters, sure, it will it will spot some uh, some pirated content that should probably not be shared. But there's also going to be leagues of collateral damage, and um, that's just not the direction that that we need to be moving. I I don't think that that's a solution at all. So, but in in terms of the crypto, I mean, people deserve to earn. We think for their contributions to social networks. Um, you know, users should should come first. Creators, they're the lifeblood. They need to earn. And so by giving away one of the uh, assets that we have, which is reach, we have eyeballs, newsfeed impressions. And so why not give that exposure to the people who are powering the network through this reward system? Because now one token will give you a thousand impressions if you boost with the token, um, because I'm 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 not you know an, uh, so much of an expert in cryptocurrency, but I think everyone kind of knows that they've dropped quite a bit, you know, from Bitcoin, and I know that the the mine coin is on Ethereum, um, which has sort of followed a similar decline. Has that affected that model at all in terms of how much users are being paid? Well, we actually so our our token is pegged, the Mines token is pegged at 15 cents per token, and we, we sell it on Mines. We're not so, we don't think of it in terms of money, net per se. Mm-hmm. Um, it is about the value that you get on Mines for the token. So, you know, a thousand impressions, which is what you can get with a token, is worth, you know, on Facebook, you'll pay, granted they're hyper-targeted, you'll pay, but you can pay up like up to like eight bucks for a thousand impressions. So, you know, it's 15 cents on mines. Granted, it's less targeted, but it's still it's still valuable. And we're going to continue to improve the value of those impressions over time. So, you know, I think people get confused within crypto and think, oh, it's it's just this sort of fledgling, you know, digital money system that, you know, granted has grown a lot, but it also dropped. Uh, people are are clouded by that. That's not what crypto is about. Crypto is about a decentralized system of computers and networks which power the internet. It's a, it's a distributed database mm. that can act as the engine for uh, decentralized applications. So one of the biggest issues with sort of status quo social media is that they're all highly centralized. And, you know, there's multiple dangers in that from... Uh, you know, surveillance censorship, but also just in the fact that the network can just go down at any time and suddenly, you know, all your stuff is stuck on on this in the central location. Yeah, I think what Facebook and Instagram went down for a day and a half, something like that recently. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge uh, sort of media blitz about it. Exactly. Yeah, it really affects people's lives. So in a peer to peer system, you have that resiliency um, and you also have more digital rights and, and freedoms that are sort of protected with that. Now, you know, decentralized databases are currently a little bit slower. They're not um, as mature, but 
over time, you know, they're getting there and they put more power in the user's hands. So for instance, the mines tokens in our old system were just stored on mine servers, but now your tokens, you can store them on your own uh, wallet, which is basically an app on your phone or on your, in your browser. We, we have no control over them. They're, they're yours. They're not ours. And that type of mantra is really, really important. So in, you know, Despite the price going down, the developer activity is skyrocketing on Ethereum and Bitcoin and you know many other blockchains. So that's what we need to be looking at. We need to be looking at are people using applications and are they using this de- decentralized in- infrastructure for utilities that are you know valuable to people? And over time, as long as that's happening, the uh, money aspect of it will it will catch up with itself. The, I mean, even if you just look over the lifetime of Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and you know many other cryptos, you know it's all upward trajectory. It's just of, of course it's it's uh it's going to take a long time to rebuild the the infrastructure of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, I have some questions about this centralization versus decentralization, and one is looking at you know Facebook is the largest social media company out there. Um, and they've recently decided to merge their messaging services with um, you know, their subsidiaries, Instagram and, and WhatsApp. So that on the one hand is more centralization, but they've also promised to make those chats end-to-end encrypted. So do you see that as a positive step or does the centralization kind of override the encryption? I mean, I always found the encryption argument in WhatsApp, for instance, just kind of funny because okay, now we're hearing Zuckerberg talk about encryption and, and decentralization and, you know, they're working on actually a stable coin for WhatsApp. And, but it's, it's honestly all irrelevant unless it's open source. The Bitcoin, Ethereum blockchains, I mean, if they're not open source blockchains, no one takes them seriously except for like a couple, which are backed by huge banks. Um, so end-to-end encryption is they can go ahead and say that it's encrypted, but unless people can actually look at the code and see if there's no backdoors, then it's just PR. It's 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 not even if I wanted to trust them. I mean, you just you literally aren't in a position to be able to give them that that credit. Yeah, cuz isn't that the question? Is wouldn't the platform say that when they do encryption, they're basically just promising it and you know, it might be that internally it, it is encrypted and they can't right. see it. Yep. And I, I, th- I think that's kind of the model. And I, I've talked to some Facebook researchers who said, you know, we, we can't get this data. We, we wiped it. Yep. Um, and then it just it becomes a matter of trust. So I guess that's their that's their approach. That is their approach. And, you know, it's sort of the elephant in the room. It's very manipulative, I think, because they are ignoring the most clear and obvious way that they could communicate the truth of this to the world. And, you know, they're just banking on the fact that, yeah, people will trust them and, and that people won't dig that, dig that deeply. I mean, the sad reality is that most people, first of all, don't even know the question to ask. You know, the open source software is, is a totally foreign to most people. But what we're hoping is that and it is happening that there's sort of this a group of of apps that are emerging that do protect your privacy are transparent are working on decentralization places like 
you know, Mozilla and Brave and DuckDuckGo and, you know, Minds and, you know, lots of, you know, the blockchain companies, it's, it's, um, this is becoming sort of like an uh, unofficial alliance and people are starting to recognize, like I'll see, uh, you know, I don't go on Twitter often, but occasionally I'll pop in there and, uh, you see people coupling all of these apps together and saying, you know, here's the group of apps that you can use to replace, you know, Safari and Chrome. And yeah, I've seen it that in a uh, in-flight magazine with Brave and DuckDuckGo. Oh, you did? Yeah. Interesting. Nice. Um, so yeah, a couple questions kind of scattered around here. Um, I was listening to a podcast, Masters of Scale, if you know it, and there were they were talking to the founder of Flickr. And she was saying that when starting out of social media, you really need to be active in shaping the early community because that early community is going to have, a, you know, shaping effects on the tone and the conversation moving down the platform. Mm-hmm. So do you agree with that or does that creep into centralization in a way that, you know, how do you start cultivating these early group of users or do you just let them, you know, just interact with the features as they want? Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, your marketing, your messaging, your uh, positioning is all going to impact the types of people that you get. So, of course, I think that, yeah, you want to target the the people that you want. I, 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 I would agree with them. Um, I, I don't think that you should limit. I mean, you know, we've had waves of users come from you know, areas that I'm particularly interested in also, uh, not, and both, both are valuable. We have specifically been going after creators, um, people interested in crypto privacy, uh, you know, journalism, activism. These are like very inspired types of people who are really valuable to networks and it's been super successful. Um, also, with the you know free speech ethos, you you do get some people who are particularly loud and <laughs> obnoxious. But you know, as long as you have tools to block that and you know mute, then I personally would much rather you know uh, an environment where people can have open discourse and sort of let the discourse do do the work, as opposed to like a, a lockdown censored environment, which you know. The data seems to actually show that that makes the problem worse, it, it, not better. Right, right. Yeah, we'll get to that. I have a question on that point. But first, I've, I've been searching around on Minds, as I mentioned, and you know, um, I, I wasn't actively following people, but I was just looking around in different groups and typing in different different keywords. Mm-hmm. And you know, I my impression, and this is you know, take it uh, in stride, is that you know, a, a lot of the groups that I mentioned, maybe I wasn't looking in the right places. They weren't um, particularly you know, as active as a Facebook community, for example, um, a lot of the users that I randomly kind of came upon, they might have 600 subscribers, but they're only getting one view because you can see how many views their posts are getting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found that kind of frustrating. I didn't know where to go on the site. So going back to what we were talking about earlier, what would you say to people who kind of ask for the technology or want the technology to help them in assisting content discovery? Yeah. So are you opted into canary mode? I do not think so. I'm on the absolute standard. Uh, yeah. So we're actually, we've been putting a huge uh, effort into suggestions and new feed systems. So if you 
click on your your avatar on the top bar, you'll see a item called Canary, which is sort of the experimental mode of the site, mm-hmm. which you know the Canary in the coal mine kind of being willing to uh, you know test the danger zone. Uh, there's no there's no actual danger. It's just it's just testing the newest features. Sometimes there can be a couple bugs, but uh, we're we're pr- about to roll out this new system probably next week to to everybody. And the content discovery is so much easier. You can you can find the top posts under certain hashtags very easily. There's a little suggested channel widget to people that you know are deemed to be sort of in uh, related to other people that you subscribe to. And so what I what I would recommend is just opt into Canary and then look around and then let's let's chat again. I'm sure that you will you will you will feel much more confident with it. Yeah, no, I, I went to the um, where people were reporting like the help section and that was quite active. So there was a lot of fresh, fresh true, content true. there. Not, um, not the best content, um, but <laughs> content. Yeah. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. So um, another thing I noticed, and this is um, uh, you know something you just alluded to, uh, as someone who's very interested in politics, I typed that in. And of course, a lot of content came up that, you know, we might see in 4chan or 8chan or in platforms like Gab. Um, and I'm sure you get these criticisms a lot. H- how do you respond to that content being on a platform that that you've created? Right. I mean, what's the alternative is, is the question that I ask myself. And based on the research that we've done, censorship makes the problem worse. As long as it's lawful, and you know, not maliciously targeting or spamming the site. You know, the the tone that we're trying to set to set, and you know, granted, you're you're always going to have people that don't have nice positive tone, but people do respect the platform, and they do often have drastically different views. But um, what happens? when you ban that content as it goes to other platforms and gets more inflammatory and radicalized and it just makes the internet a worse place and all of the big networks seem to be playing this game of acting like they don't know that but they do know that and um you know they're just playing politics and and pr and in in caving to their i don't want to speculate but i imagine that they're aware of this data because there have been dozens of major studies about it and they can look at the data themselves so um you know we we just believe that the the bad ideas will get weeded out and you know by confronting these ideas with honest discourse over time we think that that will actually make the internet a safer place and will will cause you know the best information to rise up and you know we have human use cases of this with Daryl Davis and many others who have uh, confronted members of the KKK in fact befriended them and gotten them to leave the KKK just through open discourse so that's the strategy it isn't um, it's just not effective so you can either confront the harsh stuff head on or you can just hide from it but you have to pick one and i'm just not prepared to um contribute to making that problem worse and you know i we have filters you don't 
have to see that kind of stuff. We're trying to make it easier not to see anything you don't want to see and, and have that totally locked down. But I'm curious your take. Yeah. Um, I, we, one of our earlier episodes was with someone who did a study on Twitter and ISIS and found mm-hmm. that the censorship, basically kicking someone off of Twitter, uh, repeatedly losing their followers could potentially signal that that would, that would trigger them to go out and, and act because they felt right. like they couldn't get their, their discourse out. So I'm aware of the backfire effect. Um, what I'm, what I'm curious, I, you alluded to it, is I know you have some limitations in place on the platform for how users can boost posts. So there's sort of checks as to how much you could you can manipulate or game the the system that you have in place of boosting. Right. But the the issue, and this is something we just discussed uh, a couple episodes ago looking at organization of these groups on 4chan, different internet boards, is that they tend to be organized and they can coalesce into groups and kind of break down quickly. And, and they kind of enjoy mm-hmm. um, gaming platforms. So, sure. you know, how do you, that's where I think the danger is, is that if you have actors who are promoting really extreme views, you know, they're sort of out to game every platform that they can. So in, in that sense, I think there's maybe a, a danger in, somewhat normalizing views uh, if, if people come across it too often. So I guess the question is, is the boost limitation enough to counter that organization? Or as someone who's creating a platform, how can you kind of approach that? Because other platforms, large and small, have been largely unsuccessful. Yeah, it's the hardest thing because internet trolls and gamers, and they are smart a lot of the time. And they do know how to to game systems. And, you know, yeah, we put these tools in place like rate limits and um, we're, we just hired a, a lead data scientist to help understand some, some things better so that we can uh, de-game the system more. And it's also about putting it into the hands of the community to sort of decide. And um, I think the biggest danger is lack of connection between the community and the administrators of the network. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about some troll farm who teams up and they want to push out some certain content, you know, that content could range from pictures of puppies and kitties to, you know, some very malicious, harsh content. So, we just want the community to be active in flagging things that they see that they perceive to be uh, suspicious. And the best that we can do is just have a, a constant feedback loop between what the community thinks about certain content and, you know, involving them in that decision making process. That is a bottom up approach that I think is potentially scalable. What I don't think is scalable is expecting us, you know, our small team or, you know, any apps, small team of administrators and, you know, developers to, to be able to tackle these problems alone. It's, it, and that's why open data, um, you know, community moderation, participatory networks are just, I think that's our best bet. And, and these are all problems that are just unavoidable. So, you know, we're but we're constantly open to new alternatives. Yeah, I think it's, it's simply an arms race. Um, so I, I was checking out uh, some of the the publications you've posted on the website, 
And um, about, I guess it was six months ago, you had a, a basically a doubling in your monthly active users from 100,000 to 200,000, moving from um, some type of internet persecution move in, in was it Thailand? V- uh, yeah, Vietnam. both actually. Okay. Uh, we had one happen from Thailand where there was Facebook censorship uh, and some major journalists from there moved over like uh, Paven, minds.com slash Paven. And then in Vietnam, there was a uh, quote unquote cybersecurity law that just went into effect in, in January, which is essentially like a revolving door between Facebook and Google and the government. And it's essentially a uh, censorship and surveillance measure. So the same thing happened there. We got like 150,000 new users in like a week. So yeah, that those are natural events that have been happening for the past four years where, you know, when there's a major scandal, we will see organic growth. Exactly. And that's what I wanted to ask you about is that, I mean, I think you got your first big pop with um, the NSA, that sort of controversy, and then Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, added a bunch of, uh, of users. So, I mean, I want to ask, do you think your success as a platform is context dependent on these privacy issues or censorship that um, that happened to the the bigger players. That is is definitely a major source of fuel. Um, you know, the more they keep messing up, the easier our job is. Um, but simultaneously, I'm focused on just building interesting technology that people find appealing, regardless of all of those issues. And I think the you know the reward system is moving in that direction. It's sort of like, well, why wouldn't you want to be rewarded for, for your contributions on a network? Um, but then, you know, we're doing really innovative things with, with video chat as well in the groups. And, you know, so I think it's both. I I, I think it has to be a a multi-dimensional strategy of being a sort of sanctuary for those digital rights issues, but also, you know, walking the walk and, and having tech that is really useful to people at the same time. Right. And I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, if, I mean, looking into the crystal ball here a bit, if, um, let's say the European Commission or the American government would move in and put some really harsh uh, regulations on these platforms, maybe in five years, 10 years, mm-hmm. would you fall into the same category? If, if a bunch of users, let's say, you know, 500,000 flooded over to your site. Um, would you fall under the same regulatory rules as those because because you're open source, because it's crypto? I mean, is it kind of a different beast altogether? Yeah, I, I don't know what exactly the regulations would be and how big you would have to be to fall under those regulations. And there's such a wide range of possible scenarios that that could turn into. You know, there could potentially be some beneficial regulations, but honestly, most likely they're not going to be intelligently designed. Um, You know, the GDPR and, you know, Article 13 are are perfect examples. I mean, GDPR is sort of like has good intentions, but it also completely doesn't understand blockchain. And blockchain and GDPR uh, are not compatible because you can't delete from a blockchain. Mm. And you can't delete from, you know, peer-to-peer systems, which preserve privacy in a whole other set of ways. So, I yeah, I mean, I, if there was regulations, I imagine we would be subject to, to those at, at some point. And, 
I think people throw the word regulation around is like, you know, big tech needs to be regulated uh, very loosely and without much meat and context to what they're actually talking about. So I think that it really all depends. And we, we have to be precise and very careful about what we legislate. Yes. Um, couple last questions for you here. So you've just got a big round of funding, a Series A from Medici Ventures for uh, for $6 million. And Medici Ventures is a subsidiary of Overstock that deals with uh, blockchain investments. So how does Mines work with the blockchain or how is what's the connection between mines and blockchain so our the mines token is an erc20 token on the ethereum blockchain and our peer-to-peer transactions can be on chain users have the option to basically send the tokens to each other on chain or off chain we try to you know encourage people to go on chain but you know the ux is is a little bit uh, complex you have to install this browser extension called metamask it's not that hard, but there's also gas fees associated with it. So when you say, I want to send you 10 tokens uh, because I like your post, um, that will cost me probably right now, you know, between 25 and 50 cents of ether in gas. And that's gas fees are how you pay the miners of Ethereum to, you know, incentivize them to, to power the network. So gas fees are actually a problem in the Ethereum ecosystem that's, you know, a lot of people are trying to solve right now. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you have credit card fees and whatnot. So, you know, a, a fee for an ERC-20 transaction is, you know, it's not totally unreasonable, but I think that, you know, we want to make it as frictionless as possible. And obviously people like lower fees. But, you know, in the case of that peer-to-peer transaction, I, I, I'm tipping you for your content. Uh, that would just be fully on-chain. So that, that wouldn't be, you know, the mines um, would not be storing those tokens or facilitating that token transaction. So we're basically, you know, that component of the network is quote unquote decentralized. Most of the services on minds.com currently are on central servers. Um, we're also working on a side project called Nomad, which is a fully peer to peer network with, you know, totally unreliant on our servers. But, you know, that's, that's a work in progress. And um, we also, um, we're going to start publishing more things to the blockchain in the future, currently, you can boost a post or advertise a post on chain, where a checksum sort of uh, of metadata uh, about the advertisement will be posted to the blockchain, which um, gives you sort of the ability to to audit it and provide some ad transparency um, in a sense. And we're we're going to keep evolving that, but yeah. Um, we're not like running the whole network on a blockchain. There are there are some social networks that do that, but you literally have to pay gas for every transaction. So, you know, even commenting or, you know, liking something. So that's, um, I think, a cool experiment, but it's really not scalable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because one of the things that I saw that you had, had written about and it kind of got my, my gears um, thinking a bit was the relationship or the potential for blockchain to serve as a way to look at or sort of trace disinformation. And so you have this model where users can boost on-chain, but there's also an off-chain that is on your servers, but I guess you still have that information. Mm -hmm. So what's the relationship between, or how could a blockchain technology 
at least in you know academia and the policy space, everyone's worried about how do we stop disinformation? And there's a lot of focus on media literacy and things like that. I mean, mm-hmm. do you see blockchain as a potential way to, to counter mis- or disinformation? Well, in the sense that it's immutable um, and assuming you're actually publishing readable content, um, you know, t- typically it's just references to the blockchain in terms of content. You can't, it's not easy to publish like, you know, heavy content. Usually you have to work with uh, an additional system like IPFS or DAT to, you know, handle bigger content. Some people are publishing like some text on chain, which we're, we're looking at. But so to answer your question, I don't, I, I, I think that it can aid in, you know, providing a record of things, but I don't think that the blockchain is going to fix misinformation. It is, you know, misinformation is, I think that, you know, humans are important in that process to be uh, commenting on and providing more context about content to, you know, and there should be voting happening and references and fact checking. And that's, what's going to help us understand what is and, and isn't true. The, you know, the blockchain's not AI. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts? What, I mean, what, how, how do you think it can help? I, I, I don't know. I mean, if, if you could trace transactions to someone who's, who's boosting a lot of content, mm-hmm. um, you might be able to see that in the system that this person is boosting a, a large amount of content. That's I'm, what you can sure. do. It's, it's, you know, it, it, it has, it's, it's open data to a degree. So, it yes, it allows that level of you know I guess more public scrutiny and analytics, which but you know central servers if, as long as those analytics are exposed can also do that though that is not probably as trustworthy, but um, you know we're definitely cognizant of and working on an open data initiative and you know providing more transparency. Right, but isn't it? Doesn't it work on on blockchains where isn't it hashed? So you can't really see that that much information and trace it all the way back. Um, there are. It's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> I will say uh, you you do you know sort of have to uh, have some developer experience or some computer science experience in order to to do that. But you know you can build apps on top of it to help basically visualize things. So, you know, but yeah, developers are, are going to have to be involved. It's not like anyone can just go read a novel on the blockchain super easily. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think it's, I think it's interesting from the, from the crypto aspect to the, to the blockchain and the open source. I mean, uh, it'll be very, very cool to see, see where it goes in the future. So Bill, thanks for uh, taking the time out. It's been great. Yeah. Had a really good time. Thanks for having me. I've just been speaking with Bill Ottman, founder and CEO of Minds. If you want to check out the site, you can go to minds.com and follow us at SNMP Podcast. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Social Media and Politics Podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already. You can follow us on Twitter at SMNP Podcast. And don't forget, tell a friend, tell a colleague about the show. I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, signing off from Copenhagen. See you next time.